Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. All right, should be unmuted. Okay, great. Glad you're here with us. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can open your way, or if you have a digital Bible, you can tap, tap your way to Proverbs 31. The book of Proverbs, right after the book of Psalms, the last chapter is chapter 31. You can get there. Uh, it'd be really great. You can kind of see where we're getting this stuff. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, please don't panic. A lot of those words on the screen love to give you a copy on your way out. We've been talking about good guides over the summer. We've been looking at individuals in Scripture who can be for us examples. But examples of what? So far, we've been trying to highlight not just what we would maybe consider the impact or successes of these individuals, we've been trying to see how does God work with these people? Because what they model is not really something that you would maybe tell your kids to like go do. I don't know how many of you have looked at Abraham's life and said like, hey, if you ever get in like a tight spot and you have a hot spouse, pretend she's your sister. <laughs> then they want to date her. They're nice to you. If you're the spouse of the hot girl, they want to kill you. But... If you lie just a little bit, nobody ever says that. Nobody looks into the lives of these people and says everything they did was awesome. Everything they did was saint-like. No, that's, that's not the case. Most of the people that we see most of the time in Scripture are like really relatable people. They're people who are lusty and angry. They're people who get ashamed of things and try to hide it. They're people who get scared and they do things that are not very savory to try and like fix the thing that they're scared of rather than turning to God. What they become for us is examples of something other than just like perfect obedience. They become something more like examples of what to do when you're not super obedient. And last week we talked about that. We talked about the shame and the guilt in the life of King David. And we talked about a psalm that helps to kind of think through that. But today, after you kind of finish the psalms, like you got to get into the Proverbs, especially if you're talking about wisdom. Like the whole book of Proverbs, the whole premise of the book is that a king is telling his son like how to live. And so it's a collection of Hebrew wisdom that's given in this sort of a format of from an older person to a younger person about how life works and how life doesn't. So the genre of the proverb is like wisdom sayings. It's not telling you something that's guaranteed. It's telling you the way the universe works when it works the way it's supposed to work. And we know that it doesn't always do that, but we can also affirm that wisdom is wise. And so if you're going to talk about how to be who God wants you to be, if you want to see a picture of what we're supposed to be like, like how could we possibly skip Proverbs. So it doesn't really have characters in the same way as a lot of the rest of the scripture does. So we're going to kind of, I don't know, get a little bit creative. So if you get into the Proverbs, it talks about a lot of different topics. Like one of the topics it talks about heavily is sexuality. The Proverbs is really clear about how we're supposed to keep it where it's supposed to be. God, God gave us a really special gift with sexuality and it is nuclear, right? Like it can power submarines and, and blow up uh, cities. Like both of those things are possible with the amount of power that's there. And so if you understand wisdom, you're going to have some uh, restraints. You're going to have some ways in which this thing that is volatile but also powerful is directed. And you get in Proverbs 5 and 7, this sort of embodied um, 
picture of foolishness with this woman who is, who's calling out to a young man. And the young man is foolish, and the woman is sort of a representation of his lust. Her call is seductive, but her feet go down to death. And our culture thinks about this a lot. I think our culture is constantly um, assuming that sexuality is such a good thing because it is so pleasurable and so fulfilling and so powerful that we got to use it, and we got to use it however we can. Well, no. The Bible says no. The Bible says, yes, it is very powerful, but it has, for that reason, to be used in very specific ways and for specific purposes. You get a lot of that in the book of Proverbs. You also get a lot about foolish speech. The way that we talk is governed pretty heavily through the Proverbs. You get into James in the New Testament, and it's kind of a New Testament version of the Proverbs, actually. If you kind of read through James, there's a lot of similarities there. But he talks a lot about the tongue as well. He talks about your tongue being like a, a set on fire. It's, it is a fire that sets things on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell. That's what he says. And the, the writer of the Proverbs kind of picks up on that. The writer of the Proverbs talks a lot about the foolishness with which you speak. A guy named Paul David Tripp, who's a biblical counselor and writer, he says, words give life, words bring death. You choose. Now, that's really heavy, but it's sort of like a way of thinking about the Proverbs. This is what it says in Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It says, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. You see the comparison? The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Now, I don't know. I mean, have you not, like, have, have you made it through any week of your life without seriously regretting something that you've said? If so, it was because you were like uh, down with mono for that week or something. Like, it's just not really possible. And I feel so bad for like younger generations where everything they've ever said is recorded on some server somewhere and, and ready to come back and haunt them. In some ways, it's helpful because it allows you to sort of think about what you're going to say. But man, the Proverbs skewer us on this and they show us that there's a lot of things that you could do that would be so beneficial with the way that you speak. I mean, we talk about sexuality, but the, the gift of language is so powerful. It is a distinguishing mark, which we talked about at some... Uh, actually, I think we talked about it at camp a little bit. It is such a distinguishing mark between us and everything else in creation. Like, yeah, the rest of creation reflects, the rest of creation speaks, the heavens declare the glory of God, but not in the same way as a human with speech. God has given us the word, and the way in which we speak is so... It can be used in such a beautiful way, and it can be so incredibly destructive... Do we ever use it well? The book of Proverbs also talks a lot about the way that we work. Uh, and this one kind of hurts because if you think about your work, you kind of think, I mean, a lot of people now are doing like the work from home thing. And if you're doing the work from home thing, are you really working? Uh, I, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked about that, right? Like you can be super diligent. Some people are. My wife's great. But a lot of people are not maybe. You know, YouTube's there. It's just right there at all times. And, and unless there's some way for them to check, like, I don't know. The way in which we procrastinate, the way in which we decide how we're going to do what we do. Ah, See, the, the Proverbs talk a lot about it. It says in Proverbs 12, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Ooh. Proverbs 13 says, the soul of the sluggard, which is old, old kind of wording for the person who is very slothful or lazy, 
The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Ooh. A very wise lady named Diane Langberg talks about what God has made us to do. He says, she says, excuse me, the voice of God spoke everything into existence. He entered history as the word made flesh. To be created in his image is to have a self that projects itself into the world. To be in his image is to have voice, creative expression, thought, and will to bring to bear on this world. God called us to rule and subdue. Those are power words. They mean to go and have impact. Go make things happen. Go grow. Go create and change things. How are we doing? I mean, when you think about your fruitfulness, how are we doing? Personally, that's something that kind of uh, makes me nervous. But wisdom tells us a lot about it. So, so how do we get wisdom? If foolishness is everywhere and our lives are not really maybe perfect examples of what a wise life looks like, how do we get to wisdom? Well, the writer of Proverbs kind of used wisdom in a lot of different ways. But one of the things they did was to, to try and build wisdom as like a person, as like a lady. It says in Proverbs 9.1, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She slaughtered her beasts and mixed her wine and set her table. So what's it talking about? It's saying that she's built this perfect spot, this place. And if you get inside this place, there is a feast. And it is a wonderful feast, a rich feast with meat and mixed wine. And she sends out young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. Walk in the way of insight. So so wisdom is calling. Yeah, we got wisdom calling out from the Proverbs. We got wisdom calling out throughout Scripture. But you live with a constant sort of stream of input on what you're supposed to be doing or how you could be doing things better, Right? I mean, name any subject. We, we tend to get in trouble now because the first sort of knee-jerk when we have a question is to Google rather than call. We're going to research for ourselves and sort of use search engines and, and SEO to try and figure out what we want rather than asking maybe a wise person. But when we do that, we still get information. There's no lack. There, there's no lack of books and blogs about how to do the best of everything, how you should be working out, how you should be prioritizing tasks and efficiency, the best way to raise kids or lower cholesterol, the best way to expand profit or shrink anxiety and boredom. We want wisdom. It says in, in Proverbs 4, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Whatever it takes, get wisdom. Live wisely in every way. And so who, who, who is going to be our guide in this? Well, at the end of the book of Proverbs, God also personifies wisdom as this woman who is doing everything great. She's sort of given to us as the model lady. It says in Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10, an excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of, his li- all the days of her life. 
And then there's several verses where it describes the kind of things that she does. She rises up early and she gets to work. She's taking raw materials of the world and using her diligence and skill and work to turn it into provision for her family and people outside of her home. She's wheeling and dealing. She buys real estate. She's selling and creating. She's truly something enticing. She also, while she does all of it, laughs. If you imagine somebody with the to-do list that is represented by Proverbs 31, 10 and following, you don't imagine somebody who's laughing. You imagine somebody who's doing this, just, you know, getting everything done, just duking it out with the world, trying to make this incredible to-do list happen. But not this lady. It says in verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing. Strength and dignity are her clothing. What, what more attractive combination can there be? She laughs at the time to come. What's her disposition there? Oh, it's so attractive. Not like hot. I mean, I, mean, I know she's a woman, but I'm just saying like, I want that too. I want that. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and doesn't eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So here we have this lady. This lady is doing incredibly skilled and hard work. And she goes about it with wisdom and skill. She does the things that the culture would tell her to do, but she also does the things that God would tell her to do. She clearly models throughout this text uh, just a clear submission to the Lord, but also to a leadership structure within the home. It talks about her husband seated out at the gates. The ESV study Bible kind of fills in that a little bit. Like, why is he hanging out by the gates? I don't know. That seems kind of weird. But gates were the center of civic and economic life. Life in, 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 an, in an Israelite city where the leading men gathered. The wife's excellent work and noble character have contributed significantly to her husband's success and reputation when he sits among the elders of the land. So she supports his leadership outside the home as well. Now, take a second to put everything we've talked about in like a plate in front of you. We talked about the wisdom and foolishness, the do and don't, with your sexuality, your language, and your work. There's a thousand other things that Proverbs talks about, but those are some good headlines. Then we've talked about this woman, this woman that sets an example at every different way in which a person could interact with the world, and the example that she sets is extraordinary. If we stop the sermon here, how are you doing? <laughs> right? Like, did anybody walk in this morning and be like, gosh, I don't know. Like, I feel like I can do everything in my life perfectly. And I've got this huge amount of remainder. Like I've got a lot of extra time and energy and expertise. I don't know what to do with it. I really hope this morning we talk about more that I can do. Anybody? Of course not. Right? Of course not. Like you should. I don't know. There's probably a lot of things going on we could cut out. And, you know, like if somebody got in your world, maybe we could figure out some stuff. But by and large, the people that I know that are part of Hope Church, they're giving it what they got. Like this isn't like a call to repentance, even though probably it should be. You know, I don't know. I trust the Lord with that. But, but the people I know are generally not saying like, 
I've just got so much extra, bro. Can you fill in some blanks? Can you tell me more I could be doing? But that's what Proverbs gives us. Proverbs gives us a perfect standard. Proverbs, because our God is a holy God. Our God knows exactly what perfection looks like because it's what he is and he's not capable of anything but it. When he speaks to us through the Proverbs, he gives us a picture of actual wisdom and he doesn't lower his holiness to suit us. He gives us a perfect standard of perfection. So then, how do we not despair? Like if that is what we are called to, how do we not despair? Last week we talked about shame and guilt and we talked about it because a lot of us carry that around all the time. If you know me well, you know my story. There's a lot of that. I feel that. It's hard to just let that stuff go. How do you? Well, the Psalms are helping us. David's example is helping us. All right, but let's think about it in a different sort of aspect. Rather than thinking about the terrible things you have done, think about the great things you haven't done. How do you look at what your life is supposed to be and keep going? Like, like how, how do you not despair? Some of you guys are killing it. Like some of you guys from the outside have really impressive lives. But I know that if we got on the inside, what you think about your life, you are very aware of people who are doing much better than you. And you see a standard and you feel, if you do feel success, you feel an incredible pressure to maintain that success. And if you don't feel success, you feel a condemning despair that sinks down on you. I also know people that have been really kicked around, and they don't look very impressive from the outside, but I know that those people also feel the need or feel the desire, feel the wish of what should have been or what could have been. How do they not despair? How do they not just give up and go after something totally different? Well, this woman sets an example that's very difficult for us to handle. If you just look at the verbs in Proverbs 31, it says that she does, seeks, works, brings, raises, provides, proportions, considers, dresses, makes, perceives, puts, opens, reaches out, clothes, produces, honors, delivers, and lasts while she does it. Okay, how? Like if that's what she does, how does she do it? Because what she's doing isn't really something that we're anywhere near. So, so how do we get there? Well, while the, the most of the psalm's description of this woman does tell us what she's doing, there's a moment after that where the husband and the children rise up and bless her. And then the quote ends, and we get this last verse. And the last verse sort of zooms out further, 30 and 31, so not exactly the last verse, but almost the last verse, sort of zooms out, and you get a divine voice that speaks out over all of this from a divine perspective. And it says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And if you have read through the book of Proverbs, and I would encourage you to take a proverb a day. And if you ever choose to actually do that, and you do have like a, a Bible that you're okay with highlighting, or you have a digital Bible that you can just tap a verse and highlight, I'd encourage you to highlight different Proverbs that have made a difference for you, because otherwise it can get a little like confusing as you're reading through it. Not confusing. You just sort of glaze over, because sometimes they don't seem to relate to each other, and it just seems like this sort of rapid fire, you know, wisdom shot at you. Okay, I just 
personal experience, I would encourage you to highlight some that have made a difference for you, and it helps you to kind of keep your attention if you do that kind of one proverb chapter a day. But, but if you have read through the, the Proverbs before, a constant theme of the Proverbs and a heavily accented theme in the beginning and end of the book is this concept of the fear of the Lord. How does this woman produce something that the rest of us stand in awe of and laugh while she does it? What it says is, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And the way that we understand wisdom, it says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord as a biblical concept is a somewhat technical understanding. It doesn't just mean like, ha, oh, fear of the Lord. It also means a respect or an awe of the Lord. It doesn't actually mean less than fear. Not necessarily jump scare fear, but you should fear the fact that God is so much more in control, so much more sovereign, so much more holy. Like, it doesn't matter how tame a lion is. If you're close to a lion, that's scary. And God is much more than a lion. Like, it, it's okay to fear him, and that's why we, we use the word fear there. But it also describes an awe of the Lord. It's not just a fear like spiders and you got to get as far away as you can and you're kind of glad that other people know about them and maybe they kill mosquitoes, but like you don't want anything to do with spiders. But, but no, it's talking about a fear of the Lord that's also an awe. Something that does actually have some kind of um, semantic range of like attractiveness. Something that would, that would be so impressive that it does kind of draw you in a little bit. This woman has a fear of the Lord that sees God as God and her as not. That's, that's part of what happens with this awe. And what that does is it separates her identity from her performance. It separates who she is from what she does and makes who she is into something totally different that allows her to actually be really productive in what she does. See, success or failure, she is something different from just a natural, the way that we kind of naturally think of ourselves, when we naturally sort of think of ourselves in the way that we perform. I, re I recently started, like, jogging again, trying to, you know, get back into shape a little bit. Good friend, Jason Stone, eminently fit dude. He's not here this morning, so I'll say that. Uh, I was at his house recently, he patted me on the back, and he goes, you're just a mountain of a man. So immediately I thought, yeah, like wide at the bottom? Is that what you're talking about? Like what, what does that mean? And of course you can't say that. You just go like, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, how about them jazz? Or, you know, you just keep going. But so, okay, let's do it. Let's get back to, whew, not because of his comment. I'm not that fragile. I am very fragile, but I'm not that fragile. I was pursuing it for larger reasons. <laughs> larger reason. I didn't mean that either, but uh, pursuing it for reasons beyond just that comment. But it's indicative. So I'm going to start jogging again and try to, whew, you know, tighten everything up. But it's, it's that thing of like, as soon as you buy the running shoes, you don't just think, okay, maybe I can run slash walk for 20 minutes in the morning. Like you immediately find a YouTube video of like how to run like an ultra marathon, right? Like as soon as you think you're going to start on this thing, you kind of go to the biggest possible standard, and see how desperately you fail that standard. Instead of saying, like, man, I'm glad I got some activity. There was none for, like, six months there. 
you think, oh man, I, I want to be so much further than I am. Like I, I think that I should be doing so much better than I am doing. And, and the way in which I do this new thing that I'm hoping is going to be this really big positive impact in my life and like kind of through me and other people's reflection of how they see me becomes instead of a thing that's being progress and positivity, it, it becomes negative. It becomes really swamped really quickly in all the things that it hasn't done in my body or the things that I haven't done in my progress. I see outside of myself like really impressive standards that are out there that I have totally failed. And instead of moving more, I get despair. What's the point? I'm never going to run up and down mountains like these Utah people in ultramarathons. What's the point in trying to get out and run? Well, okay. A lot of the things that I'm thinking there are identity statements that are tied to my progress or my process, the things that I do. But the Bible says who you are isn't what you do, that who you are is determined by the Lord. So when this woman fears the Lord, who she is is something that's established. It's something that's determined by the Lord. And so while success may tempt us to try and do more and have more and maintain and see other people as seeing us as impressive, we can say no to that. While failure may tempt us to just totally give up, that despair becomes this cloud that's over everything, just breaking down any motivation you have to continue. No, 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 no. If your identity is what he says about you rather than what you do, you got a totally different basis now. You got a totally different machine for handling failure, for processing possibility. Man, this woman is somebody who's showing us what it looks like to just kill it. But a lot of us feel the, the, the other side of things. Instead of feeling like we're killing it, we feel a lot of failure. And so you look, you look, and you think maybe other things will help. Maybe, maybe it will be beauty. You know, this woman is being told that, that beauty fades and charm is deceitful. But you think maybe, okay, if I can tighten things up, maybe if I can be more healthy, maybe if I can do that thing that I wanted to be able to do at some point in my life. Uh, David Edmonds sent me an article this week uh, about the amount of money that people think that they need to feel secure. Do you know how much it is? It's more than you'll ever make. Why? Because money will never actually make you feel secure. And so if you ask somebody, how much money does it take to feel secure? They just say a number that they'll never get to because maybe that would actually work. But the amount that they have, which by global standards is amazing, can't really work. You look to all this other stuff and you think maybe these things will give my identity something solid, make me something into something that really will work. But the scripture says no. Hebrews 13, so we're getting into the New Testament, but it looks back and it says your life Keep your life free from love of money. And I think you can st install several things there. And if you go up a couple verses, it's talking about sexual morality. If you get in here, it's talking about this sort of desire for control and security that comes from your ability to buy what you want and say no to people that you want to with cash. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What's he saying? He's, he's saying, 
If you understand who God is, if you understand what God says about you, then even in your failure, you can be confident in his love. And in your confidence, in his love, you can make wise decisions. You may not become Proverbs 31 woman today, but you'll make wise decisions and be able to keep making wise decisions because you're not so crippled by the possibility of failure. You're not so inhibited by despair that's just reminding you of what has happened and shading any possibility of success in the future. You have, you have something different, and that identity, that something different comes from trusting who God is rather than seeing what you've done. There's a guy named Martin Luther who was a reformer in the 1600s, and he's somebody whose life contained a lot more like obedience than your life does, but he also had a lot more like despair over his obedience than your life does. So he kind of outdoes us on both ends. <laughs> like you would think if we were as obedient as him... He, he would be more pleased with his obedience than us with our disobedience, but it kind of goes the other way. Like his obedience also showed him displeasure with what could be. But he, he wrote a thing, it was called Table Talk. It was like a way of him kind of advising some of these students. But he talked about this, this temptation to despair. He says, my temptation is this, that I think that I don't have a gracious God. This is because I'm still caught up in the law. It's the greatest grief, and it produces death. God hates it, and he comforts us by saying, I am your God, and I know his promise. And yet, should some thought that isn't worth uh, anything nevertheless overwhelm me, I have the advantage that our Lord God gives me of taking hold of his word once again. God be praised. I grasp the first commandment which declares, I am your God. I'm not going to devour you. I'm not going to poison you. Oh, Middle Ages. We ought to know that above all righteousness and above all sins stands the declaration, I am the Lord, your God. <laughs> do, you, do you feel the reality in the gospel of that statement? The reality of despair and yet the constant war that says the gospel is true. He is my God because he does love me. And I know that he loves me because he forgave me through Jesus. If you can say that, then you can grow. Second Peter 1, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort, gospel reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness, with brotherly affection, brotherly affection, with love. He's describing this progressive growth that takes place, but it takes place after and it takes place because you know that he is the Lord your God, that he is your helper and you will not fear. What can man do to you? That he will not leave you or forsake you. And how do you know that? How can you know that? Well, that's the whole point of the gospel. That's what Jesus has done for you. And it's already done. It's past tense. You're not wondering if. It has happened. You might accept it. You might reject it. But it has happened. And he does make the proposition. The proposal's there. He's on one knee. He wants you. Are you wanting to accept that? It says in Isaiah, For a brief moment I deserted you. 
but with great compassion, I will gather you. In an overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That is reflecting the fact that you are separated from him. We've sinned, and that sin has separated you from God. But God is such that he is a redeemer. He wants to bring you back to himself, to take away that sin. Atonement, like we talked about last week. at one He wants to put you and him again into one. He wants to bring you back. If you can understand that, if you can really see that, if you can accept that, well, what can man do to you? What despair can be left? This is big stuff. This is heavy stuff. We're going to talk about it all the time. The ministry of Hope Church is trying to take this and blast your heart back into an understanding of the love that God has for you. But for some people, you know, maybe we need some extra time. I would love to talk with you more about this. If you hear this and you go, man, that sounds great. I'm nowhere close to accepting it. Awesome. Let's talk. I will move heaven and earth to buy you coffee or donuts, or ice cream, or whatever you want, and I'll eat salad, and we'll talk about (laughs) your experience of God and you. Nothing is more important, and nothing can give you a bigger possibility for your life than understanding this fact. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do ask this morning that you would give us the grace to, to know and believe who you are as God. Lord, to not be content with the way that our lives have been, with a a, a level of identity and and fragility to our identity that comes from basing it on the way that we act or perform, Lord. Lord, you are a good, good God. You are a redeemer who is standing ready to bring us back as soon as we'll turn, Lord, as soon as we'll look to you. And for those that have given their faith and their trust to Jesus and they know that they're yours forever, Lord, The enemy is constantly trying to to make us think that we've somehow lost your love. We've somehow lost that relationship. Lord, will you please remind us that that can't be the case? Will you teach us to be a people who look to the gospel, who look to the cross as often as Luther sort of modeled for us? So that remembering what is true, Lord, will argue against those enemies, will argue against the things that try to make us think that, Lord, we can't be in favor with you. And Father, as we trust the rock-solid commitment that you have to us, let us take daily steps to grow in godliness for your glory and the good of those around us. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.